Hi, this is Glenn Wexler, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. History in Five Songs with host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Martin Popoff here. Welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. We are pleased, as always, to be part of this vast and always expanding Pantheon Podcast Network. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. All right. Um, this is episode 213. I'm calling this I Can't Unhear That. Um, boy, this is going to be a episode with lots of examples. I probably could have made five episodes out of what we're going to talk about here, um, but I'll try squeeze it all in. So the idea here um, is this idea of uh, you hearing something about an album, um, somebody maybe possibly that you uh, you totally respect gives you an opinion about an album, or you hear a consensus, or we do a contrarian's dark, dark horse panel, and everybody kind of agrees on something that you didn't think of before, or just something like really, really specific that is pointed out that soon as somebody says this, you now cannot unhear that about the album, and in most cases, the whole idea here is that it's ruined it for you. It's ruined the band for you, the song, the album. So yeah, the idea is... Um, somebody tells you something and that ruins the album for you. Another way of putting this is a wall goes up. Um, you know, but the idea of I can't unhear that is also that concept of a pink elephant. When someone says, think about a pink elephant, and then it's in your head and you, you picture a pink elephant and you can't unthink the pink elephant sort of thing. So, so yeah, um, the reason this came up. I'm part of this industry email group, and we were discussing, uh, what were we discussing? Oh, yeah, the, the the new mix of Black Sabbath Live Evil, and everybody's up and down about it, and uh, this and that, and this is good, and this is bad, and, and it did get remastered, didn't get remixed, crowd noises, how's the guitar sounding? So the whole thing, you know, one thing people talked about there, and this is a minor example of this, actually, right off the bat, is, uh, is the idea of, um, is the idea of, uh, Ronnie James Dio and his vocals on the Aussie songs. And, um, you know, there was an opinion sort of slated that uh, Ronnie can sound a little dramatic at times, uh, over the top, trying to be scary and spooky, um, and that he would do the whoa, whoa, singing along with the riffs, which was really annoying to people. Um, actually, I don't want to give it completely away because uh, this leads to the next part from this discussion. So let's just dive straight into our first track and the first sort of category here. Um, so yeah, take a listen to this. This is Roger Waters with The Last Refugee. Okay, so the reason I wanted to pick this, uh, first of all, uh, to lead off, it's it's sort of uh, it's sort of uh, customary here to do this. This is my main example that I've ever thought of in my whole life of this. I can't unhear that. So why are we playing Roger Waters? So I love this album. 
This is the, uh, uh, I always have to look this up because it's a terrible, terrible album cover and title. Is this the life we really want? Question mark, all lowercase. Oh, so annoying, right? This is my most played album of probably the last 20 years. Um, like, like I said in the group, you know, it's either this or Clutch uh, Blast Tyrant. Um, but I love this album to death. Played all the time. Uh, love the lyrics. Love the music. Love the variety on it. Uh, and then a really smart music swami friend of mine, Ralph Chapman, uh, said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Roger Waters. Yeah, great album. This. The drums are atrocious." Right. So soon as I heard that, I go, "What? Really? I didn't really pay attention to the drums." Next time I go back and play it. I'm going, oh my God, yeah, I don't like the drum sounds. I don't like the choices of what's going on here. Now, this is Joey Waronker on drums. He's played for Beck, Elliot Smith, R.E.M. He's the son of Lenny Waronker. He's almost known as a producer more than... The guy, obviously, is a wise music swami himself and a great drummer and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. And when you hear what's on this album, you know, obviously these are choices made by Roger Waters and it's a little bit like Ted Nugent making the choices for Cliff Davies of, of like, this album's not going to be about drums. And Roger Waters is kind of saying that too, right? Um, so there's reasons, you know, everything's deliberate, everything is done with, done with intention. But soon as Ralph told me that, you know, I, I went back and played this and I can't unhear this idea of thinking about the drums and playing them and going, wow, the drum sounds really bad. Sounds like a machine here. He's playing practically nothing. It sounds disconnected from the song. And it really put a, a small damper on this album that I think is an absolute, absolute masterpiece from Roger Waters. I mean, Roger Waters is just a god to me, uh, Creatively speaking, I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about Roger all the time about this whole, you know, Palestinian-Israeli thing and the new controversy um, that he's getting a lot of heck for uh, just dropped yesterday is him redoing Dark Side of the Moon, right? Um, by the way, you know, I wrote a nice big fancy Dark Side of the Moon book that just came out not long ago. It comes in a slipcase, got the die cut on it and all that stuff. Get that at martinpopoff.com. Um, but... Yeah, so he's getting a lot of heck for that, and the first song, Money, just dropped, and it was, uh, it was he, he basically did the worst thing you could possibly do uh, to make this the first song and have this sort of slow jazz with nothing much going on, starting it off. Later on, there's some really interesting things, but the beginning is like, you know, you, he's just basically stepping in it sort of thing, but that's a whole other story. Um, so yeah, this is, a, this is my favorite, best example of this, and what I wanted to bring up, again, to go back to that discussion about Black Sabbath Live Evil, that led into uh, a discussion about Aussie Speak of the Devil, right? Now, I love that album. Most people I, I know love that album. I love the drums on it, the production, blah, blah, blah. But somebody in the group pointed out that, oh, I can't unhear that there's Aussie double-tracked in the vocals, right? And I'm thinking, ever since I was a kid, I've never heard that. I It never, you know, it never crossed my mind. But I can't unhear it. It's a pink elephant. I can't unhear it now that it's mentioned. Um... And, you know, I, I haven't even gone back and really looked for that. But, you know, we, you know, we argue about a lot of stuff. So I went back and looked for like, I all they were also complaining about um, Brad Gillis's uh, guitar solos. Uh, I thought that was fine. The drumming. Oh, he doesn't have the groove of Bill Ward. I think I think the drumming's masterful on it by Tommy Aldridge. So I love it to death. But yeah, so that that um, without even going back and playing it and having it annoy me, that's already annoyed me. Just this idea that, oh, you really, you can clearly hear Ozzy has been double, double track, like recorded twice to make the vocals better sort of thing. Um, I've got a whole category on live albums coming up, but that, that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, 
you know, another couple examples in this specific department. This one's not really one that, that drives me, you know, or, or made me like it less. But so the Monkey Bars solo by Coney Hatch, famous, famous Canadian guitar solo. You know, I, I always thought originally, I just assumed, you know, back in the pre-internet days, it was by Kim Mitchell. So I find out that's wrong. It is Steve Shelsky doing that. That's even better, right? It's the guy in the band rather than the guy that produced the album. So that's great. Um, but then, you know, you find out that it's actually uh, kind of like a note-for-note retelling of uh, of uh, Donna Lee by Charlie Parker. And that kind of lessened it a little for me because it's such a brilliant, brilliant, it's one of my favorite guitar solos of all time so that's a funny one uh Another one that's that's very very specific. Well, here here's a funny one. I remember Keith Olsen telling me, "Oh, Adrian Vandenberg, he can't write. He he can only write songs in the key of A." I think he told me, right? So I thought that was kind of funny, and that's a you can't unhear it sort of moment. Um, but uh, don't know if it's completely true, of course. Um, but um, another one that is along this uh, this um, very you know this literally is about as literal as you can get on this. John Bonham and his famous squeaky bass drum pedal um you know which apparently you you know it depends what versions you hear because uh jimmy page has sneakily taken it out of of various things but uh but you know uh the the record of where you can hear this uh if you listen to the right versions are since i've been loving you definitely that's probably the best one especially at the beginning um the Ocean, The Rain Song, Over the Hills and Far Away, Dancing Days, The Crunch, Houses of the Holy, Ten Years Gone, Bonzo's Montro, live version of I Can't Quit You Baby on Coda, All My Love, uh, even all the way up through uh, in through the outdoor. So that's pretty funny. Um, that, uh, you know, that's that's a literal you can't unhear. So as so soon as someone tells you that and you go listen for it, um, it's it's pretty much going to be on your mind when you play these songs. So I think that's a that's a pretty funny one as well. Um, here's another one that came up in our in our group, too. And I might have mentioned this before, but um, and and, you know, this one you have to check kind of carefully and it isn't as extreme as as the original that was talked about. But uh Good buddy of mine, Monty Connor, who's part of this group. Um, you know, we talked about um, how uh, a large portion of Motorhead Ace of Spades and a large portion of uh, Aerosmith Draw the Line is in mono. Um, and what what does he say here? So so he says the title track, Draw the Line. So so when he said this, it's like, oh, I can't unhear that now. Draw the Line is compromised for me, right? And I remember walking around playing it and, and finding stereo bits here and there and thinking, ah, I don't know, it's, it might be a little... Little exaggerated, but as he says, uh, the title track "Draw the Line" is is almost fully mono, as is Ace of Spades. The whole album, the only stereo thing on uh, Ace of Spades is the drums and headphones. You can hear the sound moving around on the drums, but the vocals, guitar, and bass um, are right right in the middle and don't move. I believe there uh, maybe a few guitar effects or overdubs that uh, that hit overdubs that hit the sides here and there. Uh, so he goes on, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, there's, there's other people in this group mentioned here. I'm, you know, I usually kind of try not to mention names. Um, but, um, he did, he did mention a couple other things that I thought were, uh, interesting. Uh, the first Michael Shanker group album, the first blood rock album, go play the blood rock song, wicked truth on headphones, guitars right up the middle, no spread. Um, so yeah, kind of interesting, eh? Um, so uh, I guess my wider point here is again, some someone smart is telling you something you may not notice unless you're told. All of a sudden, it becomes the pink elephant. You go back to Ace of Spades and draw the line. You're thinking most of it's in mono, or you know, put it this way: however much of it is in mono, and you know, it causes us to you know talk about these ones. Uh, basically, 
it means it's not a very sophisticated mix, right? Um, and that and that bothers you uh, in, in itself. So, uh, so yeah, there's our there's our first example. Uh, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, back again here on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Let's go to our second selection here, and we shall discuss. This is uh, our episode 213. I can't unhear that. Take a listen to this. This is Judas Priest with Love You to Death. Man, I I barely I'm playing this song and I barely even remember this existed. I mean, I you you could have told me they had a song called this, I wouldn't even know. I've written three Judas Priest books, four, I guess, I suppose. Um, but uh, the funny thing is, I'm playing this and going, yeah, this is the first time I've ever heard this song. Um, pretty weird. Um, but no, um, obviously, uh, yeah heard it many many times but yeah so the thing about um this uh this idea of i can't unhear that as soon as you hear that the ram it down album is all drum machine you know that really ruins that album for you you know you usually think of five long-haired guys making this music and as soon as you hear that it's all drum machine it really really compromises uh the record for you um and along this lines i want to mention some other examples here in this in this faked sort of thing um you know Hearing Tom Schultz, you know, I, I interviewed him in detail about this and he's going through about how everything's drum machine and it's meticulously this and that. I can't unhear those later era Boston albums and think drum machine, it bothers me, right? Um, along the same lines, one of my favorite drumming performances of all time, you guys know this, uh, ZZ Top Rhythmine. It's not Frank Beard, it's Greg Morrow playing the drums, and I, yeah, I, I think that's him on most of Mescalero, if not all of it. But yeah, I, I love the drums on that, I love the drum sound, the production, um, but it's, you know, 
if this is a three piece and one of the three pieces isn't there doing this masterful, masterful, incredible uh, performance all over the album. Um, a famous apocryphal example of that from early on is you think Aerosmith, get your wings, train kept a roll and Joe Perry, he's the guitar hero. I love my Joe Perry, right? And then it turns out it's Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter doing all that, you know, excellent soloing. Oh, on Train Kept a Rolling. Uh, you know, you could do an entire episode about Kiss and this, how, you know, you were let down when that was Vinnie Vincent and not Ace playing that. You were let down when it was Anton Fig playing that and Peter Chris not playing that. Uh, you know, all the shenanigans that go on with the Psycho Circus album as well. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of that that goes on. I mean, this all goes back to the Beatles and Paul McCartney playing the drums here and there and all that kind of stuff, right? Another funny one in this department, though, um, is Fleetwood Mac Big Love, right? You listen to that and you hear those sexual cooing noises, right? You think it's Stevie and Lindsay and that. No, it turns out it's Lindsay speeding up his voice to sound like a girl. And uh, and so it's, it's Lindsay, you know, playing with himself, basically, playing his vocals with himself. And that kind of ruins Big Love for you. So that's a perfect example, right? You can't unhear that. Soon as somebody tells you that little bit of trivia about that song, it's kind of ruined it for you, right? Um so yeah, oh yeah, and and another one um, that that bothers me. Uh, it, it's a little bit in this department. Is is it in this department? Let's see. Should I should I talk about it now? I suppose we can. Um, I really hate those those compromised lineups because um, yeah, this is like the Kiss situation. You think of the cover of Back Bad Reputation, uh, Thin Lizzy with just the three guys on the cover. You think of uh, of Motorhead, March or Die, and kind of like the guest drummer in the band. Um, you think of uh, Max Webster, Universal Juveniles, and it's kind of like only three band members listed as being the band. You think of Diamond Head, pictures of just the two guys together. All of that really bothered me, right? So I can't unsee those pictures. I can't unread those credits. Um, I just feel like the band is fragmented. Um and along the line here as well, you uh, along these same lines, you've got you know the faking of live album. That's a that's another huge big thing. Kiss Alive, Kiss Alive Two, you know, re-recording all the vocals and guitars, and even the Van Halen. Wow, that was that was a really you can't unhear that moment when I heard how much they had to completely redo Van Halen live right here, right now. Um, and, and bring Sammy in to redo all the vocals because the other guys were like the the, the speed or, or whatever. What, what was it? The tuning, the speed, something like that. Various problems. I mean, there's there's reasons you have to do this stuff. There's Actually, there's never reasons you have to do this stuff. What they tell you is the reasons they have to do this is, is some mic didn't work or something, you know. It, the crowd noise thing is another big one, right? Like Blue Oyster Cult's live album using Edgar Winter's uh, crowd. There are famous examples across jazz, prog, everything of of having, uh, you know, the producer put an, an audience on loop so you hear the same whistles and screams every once in a while. There's stuff from bullfighting matches. I can't remember what example that was, you know, st- stripping in the, um, the girls screaming thing because of the whole Beatles thing. Uh, but yeah, I got a whole note here that I'm not going to read because this is going to turn out to be a long episode, but there's a lot of shenanigans that went on with Kiss Alive 2, uh, especially uh, in this department. Queen Live Killers, same sort of thing. Lots of cutting and pasting and overlapping. And yeah, as soon as you read these things about these live albums, you can't unhear it. You know you know they're not live anymore and it really, really starts to bother you. And that, that happens with a lot of live albums. And people have that whole debate over the whole thing. How much is it going to 
bother you. And frankly, you know, the funny thing about this, um, this I can't unhear that thing is half the time you know this stuff, you know it for a couple of years, then you forget it, right? And then you and then and then and then it's like, you know, how many times has someone said to you some some cool musical fact or whatever? And and I remember typing in Facebook messages back and go, I don't know if I ever knew that, or I forgot it. You know, there's this awkward phrasing you have to do to say, Oh, interesting. Um, it's like, did I once know that? Um, so yeah, some of these things can fade with time in, in the in this whole idea of I can't can't unhear that. Um, all right, let's go on to our third example here. Take a listen to this. This is Genesis with Silver Rainbow. Okay, so this one comes up because we just did a Dark Horse panel on the Genesis Genesis album, and I had a deep thought that, um, you know, I hadn't really uh, brought to mind. You know, you work through these things. I guess it's like therapy, right? You work through these things, and you and you realize, hey, I'll articulate this for the first time, and then that thought ossifies for you, right? So my thought on this that was the deep thought is that I guess I always kind of considered this particular Genesis album, I, and I love this era of the band. You know, Abacab is my favorite Genesis album, right? Um, my deep thought here is that um, is that I've always felt like this album to me sounds like a demo version of what the album could have been. It sounds like synthesizers, uh, uh, synth drums synthesizers, synth drums, and vocals. Uh, you know, only when I went and gone, gone through and played the whole thing and, uh, and you know, to prepare for the episode and go through it song by song, I started hearing all these extra things and the obvious work that goes into it. But basically, I've had this thought my whole mind or my whole life that, that this sounds like uh, basically demos. It sounds like synthesizers and vocals. It's a synthesizers and vocals album. And what that led me to and I didn't really recognize this or realize this, but it led me to this idea. And this is another one I could do a whole episode on. I've been threatening to right? children's music. Right. So it led me to this idea that Genesis has really sort of dumbed down and simplified and they've they've crossed over into the realm of children's music. Um, and along those lines, I've I've never been able to shake that thought about ABBA. Uh, I've kind of never been able to shake that thought about the Ramones. Even to a certain extent, I feel that way a little bit about Iron Maiden, Slayer, and Kiss. Um, so yeah, there's this whole pile of bands that that I've got this weird relationship with the idea of children's music with. And, and in a subtle, kind of semi-deep way, this Genesis album feels like that to me. It feels a little bit like, as I said in that, that Contrarians thing, I felt like they, they've crossed into the world of Huey Lewis and the News, which I also consider children's music, right? Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. So that's one. So the theme here with, with our number three selection is my own thought. So this is when I've formulated a thought in my mind and now I can't unhear that thought or, or unsee that thought or unthink that thought. Um, other examples. So we just did a panel on Van Halen, different kind of truth. And everybody was talking about 
David Lee Ross vocals and David Lee Ross lyrics, right? So so they, they were hammering down on this, and I respect all these guys, and I'm listening to their opinions, and they're wise music swamis, right? Um, so by the end of it, I'm thinking, yeah, I guess that is the thing that's been bothering me, and now it's been reinforced by by these guys I respect that that the lyrics are a little, uh, you know, as I said it, bumper stickery, and the vocals are a little high in the mix. I remember saying that, and then other guys kind of confirmed that thought for me. It's like, oh, it must be true, okay? Um, so that happened. Um, you know, I, another one that really feels like this um, that that is a problem is uh get this one so so see what you guys think of this blackmore's night isn't serious celtic music okay so is it is it serious renaissance medieval music celtic music folk music i can't i can't get past that wall as i said in the beginning there's a wall that goes up that i can't get past it and take it take it seriously i can't i get i guess i can't get past seeing a picture of richie and candace and and thinking there's something weirdly you're not from the right place you know one of you is american one of you is from deep purple uh, I, I just I, I just can't take it that extra step and and see it as as serious celtic music looked at as art as you know great uh, you know practitioners of this um i also wanted to mention william walker has given me you know some some good ideas here as well uh, or some good examples of this um so so this is kind of an interesting one. So what he says is, Black Sabbath, Budgie, and Motorhead, these literally might be my three favorite bands if they actually had guys who could sing. Now, I don't, I don't agree with that fact, but that made me think about um, definitely the idea that, so Budgie, he mentions Budgie. So um, over the years of doing all these YouTube shows, um, I've had lots of people say, yeah, Burke Shelley's singing, ah, not so great or whatever. And then also every time I tried to turn people on to Max Webster or Kim Mitchell, you know, uh, Americans, for example, say buddies who, you know, had, had no, you know, no truck in this, uh, uh, you know, in, in this discussion, they'll, they'll come away and say, oh yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty, I don't, I don't like that lead singer. Right. And then I'm like, I go away and go, oh, it's never crossed my mind to not like Kim Mitchell as a singer. Um, but now three, four, five people have told me that it's like, okay, kind of compromised it a little bit. Right. Um, here's another interesting, uh, you know, concept that, that William Walker brings up. So he says, deep purple slaves and masters putting the deep purple name on a rainbow album really smarts. So, so he, you know, he said the words really smarts and I like that. It's like, because what really smarts is very quickly, um, you know, you call this the deep rainbow album, right? So soon as you say that, so soon as you hear deep rainbow, you can't unthink that it's the, it's the pink elephant, right? Um, so now that's all you think about when you think of that album. Um, you know, it's, it's really compromised the artistic integrity of the album, Deep Rainbow. So that's kind of the same thing as William saying it really smarts. Um, let's see. Okay. So he said this as well. And I thought this brought up a great concept. But again, like I say, this episode, I mean, this could be five episodes, but he goes, Gary Moore hated my favorite Gary Moore albums, the eighties hard rock ones. So that's a huge can of, can of worms there. The idea of when, um, you know, an artist decries some of their work and it's something you really like. Neil Peart was famous for this, of thinking all the seventies stuff was a little embarrassing. Joe Elliott decrying, you know, their participation in the new wave of British heavy metal and saying on through the night wasn't such a great album. Right. And everybody loves on through 
through the night. So that's an interesting one as well. You you can't unhear the artists themselves putting down their own work that you really like. I thought that was pretty interesting. A um, couple other ones in this one. Um, when you when you hear uh, that uh, a certain album by a band was supposed to be a solo album, you know you think of Black Sabbath, Seventh Star. You think of Dee Snider, um, Dee Snider, and that Twisted Sister, the last one, right? Love is for suckers. You think of Miles Goodwin, uh, April Wine, Forever for Now. Um, other ones are when you know that there's two drummers on an album. We've kind of gone down that road a little bit of that. You know, the Motorhead March or Die thing is an extreme example, which really is annoying, right? Um, you know, Phil Taylor drums on one song. Um, who else drums on one song? Yeah, Mickey D drums on one song. Drums on all other tracks, Tommy Aldridge, right? So Tommy Aldridge, Motorhead, that doesn't really go together. You know he's not in Motorhead. Um so that's really annoying too when that happens. So you can't unhear the idea that Motorhead really doesn't have a drummer uh, on March or Die, uh, which you know it just just puts a puts a bummer, puts a damper on it, right? Um, all right, let's go on to our fourth selection here. Boy, I don't want this episode to be too long. Take a listen to this. This is Motley Crue with Five Years Dead. Just like love it to death. I, I I didn't even remember this song existed. I, I go look up on Wikipedia. It's like the first song on side two. It's like, what? I'm I'm playing this. I'm going like, I don't I it's like I've never heard this song before. Um so the idea here is I can't unhear all the all the crappy things about Motley Crue, you know, starting with Vince Neal and and the Razzle Death. Um, you know, all the um all the drunken bad behavior, uh, the drugs, the uh, you know the, the the not being great to the women sort of thing, the um, the um, the Vince phoning it in on vocals, the Vince not keeping it uh, in shape, the uh, all the recorded tracks, all the rumors about you know bass and you know the fight with Mick Mars, the uh, the absolutely we are absolutely emphatically retired, but now they come back and they just do a lousy job of it. Blah blah blah. It goes on and on and on and on. Right. So the idea here is that this is my best example of a band where they've just blown all the goodwill with me, you know, inexorably over time to the point where I can't listen to Motley Crue anymore because I just think they're jerky guys. Right. Um, you know, even though I've, I've met, I have, I met all of them. I've definitely interviewed all of them. Um, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, I think I have, and repeatedly, and uh, they were, they're quite quite nice guys, you know, in in person to me, anyways. Uh, you know, when we talked, but yeah, I thought that was that was um, you know the best example of that. The best example universally of that, of course, is Ted Nugent, where people are really upset about the hunting thing and the guns thing and the being the big right winger thing, and that's really you know caused uh, big problems with his career. Um, you know, uh, what else do we got in this? You know, I'm, I think I'm going to skip some of these. Well, yeah, I'll mention this one as well. So 
what about the whole sperm thing, right? Uh, you know, Black, Black Sabbath, a Spiral Architect, song about sperm, load and unload. Uh, you know, the, the cover art, blood mixed with sperm, right? Sperm in the clouds of mirrors, right? So the idea here, Black Dog, um, you know, uh, it's just a song about a dog, trashed. Uh, it's just a song about, you know, getting drunk and racing around the car on the rent, right? you know, the, the track on the rent car. So when you hear certain things are about something that you thought it was like some big lofty, cool idea, um, and then all of a sudden you find out, eh, it's about sperm, right? Uh, that that sort of thing, which is kind of funny. And that, that again could be a whole episode, right? I'm sure there's tons and tons of great examples of songs that you think are this, uh, this big lofty theme uh, that you realize... Uh, you know, oh, I just wrote that about my cat, uh, kind of thing, right? Um, let's see, what else do we got here? Okay, well, let's let's skip that. Let's move on to our next selection here. Uh, take a listen to this. This is the Pat Travers Band with Making Magic. course this is the live rendition from go for what you know and what is the theme here i can't unhear the fact or un, you know unread the fact that this live album was not recorded outside on a huge sunny day in california at day on the green playing to eighty thousand people right so so uh, i i've mentioned these a few times but you know MC5 kick out the jams really bothers me that that's recorded at the Grandy Ballroom because I look at that album cover front and back and I think it's like a big outdoor festival gig, right? And that's what it sounds like to me, right? Same with this Pat Travers band album. I don't think there's a more glorious, amazing, outdoor sounding killer performance live album and that's why people love it so much and then that's reinforced by the live pictures uh or you know the outdoor live pictures on the back right um fog hat live exact same thing live pictures on the back it looks like a big crazy outdoor you know everybody's getting sunburned kind of gig um and that's recorded at the dome arena a 4,000 seat indoor arena uh, just outside of Rochester, New York. You know, you know, talk about putting putting a bummer on it. Henry, Henrietta, New York kind of thing, right? Um, so yeah, that, those are three big examples of that. And, you know, a little more obscure, and I don't have examples of this, but um, I definitely have noticed that I have been, I can't unhear that when I find out that a certain live album you know, where it's a band you associate with a certain place, say they're an English band, and and you hear their live album was recorded in, in you know, Boise, Idaho, or something like that, right? That sort of thing um, has bothered me from time to time as well. When you, when you hear the live album, or, 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 you know, you're, you're kind of picturing it as, as one concert, but you, but then you find out that it's recorded, this one's from 1988, this one's from 1990, halfway around the world, you know, these three tracks are from 1984, whatever, you know, when it's really broken up like that, you know, that's an extreme example, even breaking it up by year, um, but yeah, so so that sort of thing um, has bothered me with live albums as well, so yeah, you've, you've, you've got the faking it on live albums, you've got the uh, outdoor-indoor situation, which is one of the big ones for me, oddly enough, I mean, I just, I spent my whole life picturing kick out the jams Foghat live and go for what you know as being recorded outside in front of 80,000 people right not not really the mc5 but 20,000 people right 
who are about to riot and burn down the city and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so, uh, so that's a funny one. And then, like I say, this this idea of uh, of these albums, finding out what cities they're recorded in, and, and you know, basically your thought is, eh, it was just another, it was just another gig of the of the fifty that they did. You know, it was just happened to be the middle one, and you know, hey, let's get the recording equipment out and do this one. It just it just sometimes seemed just very random, uh, right? Uh, the way they did this. Um, all right, boy. I, I told you it was going to be a long episode, and it has been. So that is your various examples of I Can't Unhear That. If you like the show and want to support future episodes, please go to coffee.com, um, uh, rhymes with coffee, uh, slash Martin Popoff. Hit that red support button. Buy me a coffee or a pint. This week, I would like to thank Andy at Black Sugar Transmission, Jeffrey Coggins, Rob Carhakangas. Car, yeah. I, I never, Rob, I've known you for years. I've never, uh, never really gotten that uh, pronunciation right. I'm sorry. Monty Olson, uh, Augustin Garcia de Paredes, Steve Polari, Barry Sanders, Petri Taskinen, and William Walker. Thank you all very much. Uh, you can go to martinpopoff.com. Um, for all your book needs, um, yeah, a few things coming down the pipe coming up. Uh, got a, got a new book deal uh, to do something pretty interesting. But right now, the latest are The Cure, the David Bowie, the ACDC, and the Pink Floyd, the big lush coffee table books. I signed them, sent them out from the office, PayPal buttons there, blah, blah, blah. I know you're all asking about Kiss at 50, um, you know, and I have to answer this question all the time, and it takes a lot to answer in writing. But the idea is, you know, these things go up on Amazon ahead of time, and it's kind of annoying because... Um, Basically, I won't I won't take pre-orders. I don't want to take people's money. As I always say, I, I I don't start telling people about these books until I see the heavy boxes sitting across the floor. And then the fact of the matter is I physically have them and can send them out as fast or faster than Amazon gets them or, or whoever, right? Um, whoever your distributor is. So so that's the point. Uh, you'll hear about them because I have my database and I'll send out a message. Um but, um, you know, I, I don't take people's money ahead of time because then that's just hanging over for me for however long it takes to, for the book to actually happen. So, yeah, just be patient. Wait for me. I do better uh, if you get it from me. Uh, certainly a lot better than, than, you know, some of these things I don't even get royalties on. Like some of them are just like right, right for hire and that's it. So the only way I make any extra money on them is... Uh, is by getting them through me, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's the story on the kiss at 50. So, uh, yeah, uh, go to the Facebook page. Let me know what, uh, what other examples of, I can't unhear that, uh, you have, or, or unthink that, or unhear that somebody told me that, or unhear that on the record. And now it's bothering me. Um, I'm sure there's many, many, many other examples. Uh, for now, uh, go play that Roger Waters album again, man. Give Roger some uh, some love. I, I just think that's an amazing album. I'm kind of interested to hear this Dark Side of the Moon thing, but man, is he taking a drubbing for that. Talk to you later. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.